Go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. As we've moved through the book of Acts over the last few months, uh, I gave you the theme, as Frank Stagg would have given it to you, if you would have sat in a seminary course down at New Orleans. You would have heard him say that the theme of the book of Acts is the triumph of the gospel over every barrier, that the gospel would just continue to achieve its victory and its purpose no matter what would come its way. Now, that's the theme of the whole book. And when you look at this eighth chapter, I think you really see it. I think you see that example. You see it stated so clearly for us as that gospel just continues to go forth no matter which barrier comes before it. I want you to see this as we beginning verse 1. Remember, as we looked in the last week or two, we saw how Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is, Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great, great limitation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So Dr. Luke continues this narrative of the gospel and its advancement, its progression. He has told us of Stephen's death. And then he informs us, just as kind of a side note, that their consenting to the death was this man named Saul. And it says of this guy that this guy is an individual that's going into every house. He's dragging off men and women. He is taking them to be in prison. It's a bad guy. And he's just kind of mentioned as a side note here. So I want you just to take that information and place it to the side and remember that when we get back to the conversion of Saul, which will be in about six months, okay? I'll remind you of those verses. But it's just kind of a side note. He just mentions that as he's working through. The bigger picture here is that the church is being persecuted. I mean, it is full-fledged persecution there in Jerusalem. They are coming against those who have committed themselves to the way, to the name of Christ, and they are persecuting them, imprisoning them, killing them, obviously, and the people scatter. Now, again, so many of us were raised in uh, churches, and so many of us have biblical backgrounds that our minds naturally leap to the next episodes of the church. We... we we remember what happens. We know about Saul's conversion. And we know the story in such a way that sometimes I think we miss the movement of the story here as Dr. Luke intended it. Because you see, as Dr. Luke was writing on the inspiration of the Spirit, and you look at the different moments of that early church, it seems like everything is coming against it. I mean, if you were to read it the first time, you would read something like this, and you would begin thinking to yourself, Will that Christian movement, will it be sustained? 
I mean, can it really make it? If it is facing such persecution, can it really continue? If you're reading it for the very first time and you're just honest with yourself and you're just reading through uh, void of all history, void of all kind of learning that you've had before, just reading it, the movement of it, the story, it would appear that we had reached a place where the church was facing such persecution that its very existence was in doubt. Here you have Saul and others, religious leadership, coming against the church. But I've given you the theme, right? The theme is the triumph of the gospel over every barrier. And what Dr. Luke is going to show you here is that the gospel is triumphing. It, it is finding victory over tragic persecution because it is in the midst of tragic persecution that God continues to spread his word I mean here you are bad picture dark hour for the church it seems in verse 4 therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word here's the great God we serve he takes the darkest hour of the church or one of the darkest hours. He takes this moment of persecution. He takes the death of one of his own servants, the death of a faithful deacon, the death of a man who is full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. He takes that moment and he uses it to advance the gospel. See, I think... This is what you have to see, the glory and the greatness of the God we serve. Because there would be moments. It says here, as a matter of fact, that they were making great lamentation over Stephen. Rightfully so. It's okay to sorrow. It's okay to have a broken heart. It's okay to miss individuals. Here they are, though, in the midst of that moment. And God says, you know what? I'm just going to take it and I'm going to redeem it. And I'm going to use it to advance the gospel. This is one of my, uh, I guess you would say, uh, hobby horses. This is one of those that I get up on these platforms and I shout uh, very often about and you'll hear me preach about. And that's one of the reasons I like to kind of move through the scripture in such a uh, methodical way. Because I think I'd preach this message every time I got up if I didn't. And I have to balance myself with the whole counsel of God. But, but this idea that God can take any situation, even the most difficult, and he can redeem it for his good and for his glory. I mean, that encourages me. That is one of those truths that gripped me some time back. And I've never gotten away from it. That God can take one of the most difficult moments and he can use it for his glory. I know it's Romans 8, 28, that God can take all things and, and, and work them together for his good, for the good of us, for his glory. I understand that Romans 8, 28, but isn't that a beautiful work? 
And isn't that a beautiful reality of the great God we serve? Because living on this side of heaven, we're going to face some difficulties. We may even face persecution as a church. But what God can do is take it in his power and in his his own strength, and he can use it to advance his agenda. I mean, the cross itself was the supreme example, right? Think that it was meant to be evil. Oh, it was meant to be evil. And yet God took the cross and he used it for salvation. And now today, people wear crosses around their necks because that symbol has been so redeemed from a symbol of horror to a symbol of salvation. That's the power of God. And that's the God we serve. So here he is taking persecution itself. And it says that the individuals scatter. Not the apostles, but the others. They scatter. They spread out. Why? Because of persecution. They, they don't want to face all of the consequences. And yet... God is taking them and using them because when they go to these other places, what happens is they're sharing the good news of Christ. What are they to be? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're to be witnesses. So God takes persecution and he uses it. He uses it to advance his gospel. The triumph of the gospel over every barrier, even if it tragic persecution. I would suggest to you that really even in those moments that the church has faced intense persecution, those moments may have been the best moments of the church's life. I do believe that we deal with persecution much better than we do prosperity. Just be honest with you. I think we see the purity and the perseverance of, And we see the power of God working through those moments. Because we recognize how dependent we are upon him. And here, persecution that would seem to threaten the very advancement of the gospel. God uses it to spread the good news. So in this passage, I see how God overcomes tragic persecution in order to advance the gospel. Continue reading, though. In verse 5, it says, Then Philip, another deacon. Gotta love deacons, right? Deacons, I'm sorry, but I think y'all got less amens than I did this morning. Another deacon, Philip, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, Philip, one of these individuals that had been elected, been chosen to help out, to take care of the, the widows. Now he's out. He's in, the, he's in the area of Samaria. And he is preaching Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord. Heeded the things spoken by Philip. Hearing and seeing the miracles. Which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice. Came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in that city. So not only does Dr. Luke say that tragic persecution was overcome, 
He also reminds us here, he also reminds us that ethnic tension can be overcome. Now, what I mean by this is notice the area that Philip is ministering in. The area, this place we call Samaria. Well, again, many of you, through your biblical backgrounds, through your study, you know that there was great tension between the Jews of the day and the Samaritans. Remember how that tension was formulated, how it came about? In 722 B.C. or so, as Assyria came down and destroyed that northern kingdom of Israel, as it laid waste to them, what the Assyrians would do is they would come into an area and they would deport different folks to other areas of the kingdom. And then they would bring other folks in to those areas that they had conquered in order to somehow mix the cultures so that you could really have a mix, mixing together of the races and break down the identity of the previous culture. It was better for them to reign in that way. They believed it was best for their kingdom. So what they would do is that they would bring in these other individuals and hopefully there would be the intermarriage and thus you would have a culture that had been, a culture that had been mixed at the very best. So here they were many, many years before those who lived in that area of Samaria who had either married these folks the Assyrians had brought in or they had married some of those Canaanite tribes individuals, those tribes people they had married and somehow had broken down the lineage. And the Jews, those who were in Jerusalem, those who believed they were of pure blood, they despised the Samaritans. The Samaritans even developed their own religious practices. They even believed that Mount Gerizim was the place that they were to worship, not Jerusalem. The story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, remember, where should we worship? You say here. Our people say here. What are we to do? So you had this breakdown in, in uh, ethnicity. You had this breakdown in the worship, in the faith. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews and the Samaritans hated the Jews. There was a mutual hatred between these individuals. Remember at one time in Jesus' ministry, a Samaritan village had, um, had not welcomed him nor the disciples into their area. And you remember what the sons of thunder wanted to do? James and John, remember, they were great Baptists. They looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, they won't welcome us in. What should we do? We sh could, we, could we, like Elijah, just call fire down on them and destroy them? That's what they wanted to do. They couldn't stand the Samaritans anyway. Later on in Jesus' ministry, when he was confronted by religious leaders, he was called a Samaritan in order to demean him. And now look at what happens. Philip goes into this area of Samaria and they hear the gospel and they come to salvation. What a tremendous work. How God is overcoming ethnic tensions in order for his gospel to go forth. For the good news to reach Jerusalem, 
Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He overcomes those ethnic tensions. Now, you'll note as you continue down in verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. I know I said I was going to finish in 8. I know you looked at the bulletin. We're continuing on just a few minutes, all right? But there was a certain man called Simon, verse 10, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And he was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Verse 14. Now when the apostles were at Jerusalem... And they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is a big deal. The Holy Spirit's coming upon the Samaritans. The Holy Spirit's coming upon the people of Samaria. Now, I know when you read through it, you probably have a lot of questions because it says they, were, they believed and they were baptized, but yet it took the apostles coming and laying hands before the Holy Spirit came. Dr. Reggie usually have said that the Holy Spirit comes at the very moment of salvation in our lives. So what is the difference here? One, I would say to you, when you come to this passage, you must be very careful. I know some denominations and, and individuals today that will take certain passages like this and they'll build their doctrine of the Holy Spirit upon one passage. You must be careful, especially in the book of Acts. Why? Am I doubting the truth of Acts? Absolutely not. I believe it's the word of God. I believe God has spoken. But remember, this is a transitional time in the life of the church. Remember that Dr. Luke, he is writing in such a way to describe what is happening. He is not prescribing what we should do and how it happens. As a matter of fact, when you look in the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit's coming, there is not one normative way in which the Holy Spirit comes. They're all different. For me to come and to pick one and say, that's the way I believe the Holy Spirit comes, is I think it, it is something that we should avoid in our lives. So, so let me try to explain a little bit of this. Notice here you have almost what some would call the Samaritan Pentecost. This is the time when the, Samar when the Samaritans will receive the Holy Spirit up to this point only the Jews had received the Holy Spirit, right? They have Pentecost. Some of you with me. Shake your head. Only one that's still awake is a Mississippi State fan I see here tonight. The Holy Spirit had already come upon the Jewish people. But now, as they receive, as Philip preaches, the apostles come almost like a validation that the Spirit of God and that the work of God is being accomplished in the Samaritans. 
you have the Holy Spirit coming upon them. This is a transitional time. And you got to love it. You got to love this. You got to love the way Dr. Luke writes and the way God operates. In chapter 2, you have the Holy Spirit coming upon the Jewish people. Those who consider themselves fully Jewish, right? Chapter 8, you have the Holy Spirit coming upon the Samaritans. Like a better terminology, let's call them the half-Jews. I mean, that's the way they were looked at. They had some heritage, but they were not pure Jews. Later on in chapter 10, we'll see, in probably about two months, in chapter 10, you'll see the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And thus, that transition period is complete. Thus, God has demonstrated that he can overcome ethnic tensions and that God will, salvation is not just for a select ethnic group, but is for the world. Holy Spirit coming up on the Jew, the half-Jew, the non-Jew. And that is the validation because the Jews in particular, those of Jewish background, they were very suspicious of the Samaritans and of any work of God in their lives. And what God does, I believe, he deliberately and purposely waits on the coming of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John are there to validate God's work among them. And they receive power. God overcomes ethnic tension. And the gospel triumphs over that ethnic tension. Understand at this point still how fragile the church is and how ethnic conflict could bring the church to its knees. But God would have nothing of that. God would demonstrate the power of his work and the power of his Holy Spirit within all peoples so that there would be no doubt that his gospel that his good news transforms all nations, all lives who have surrendered to him. And lest we forget, lest we forget, we were on the outside looking in. And yet God loved all nations in such a way that he extended grace to me and to you as Gentiles. The triumph of the gospel over every barrier, tragic persecution, ethnic tension, and even as you read through this, demonic deception. Call your attention back to verse 9. To a man called Simon. It says that he previously practiced, practiced sorcery in the city. And astonished the people of Samaria. You got to like this phrase here Dr. Luke uses. He says claiming that he was someone great. 
You ever seen those kind of folks? My home pastor used to say these were individuals that could stretch sitting down. They thought so much of themselves, their greatness and their glory. And somehow, somehow, he was trying to communicate that to the people. And the people were buying into it. This charlatan, they were buying into it and saying, this, the man is the great power of God. Later on, the early church fathers will write about this man and they will talk about how he had really led the Samaritan people to believe that he was divine himself, that he would even travel to Rome if it is the same one that our church fathers wrote about. He would travel to Rome in great glory and grandeur of all the things that he could do. And look, I don't doubt that he couldn't do great things. Well, let me say powerful things because remember Satan himself can do powerful things. And there is a demonic power and influence that we see in this world. It says that here he is. And perhaps he gets caught up in the sensation of it. He gets caught up in the, in the, in the hope that things will, will, will turn his way and that he'll receive some of that power because he's looking around and he's seeing the power of the Spirit working in these individuals' lives. And these individuals are now following this, this man named Christ who had been resurrected from the dead and they're not following him anymore. And, and it says, verse 13 says, in some way he believed. Now, whether it was saving faith, it, it doesn't appear to be that. But it says that he goes through the motions. And notice at the end of verse 13, may give us some insight. It says, he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. He was seeing all the, the power and the great things that were done. And somehow he was led that direction. And listen, while the miracles of the New Testament authenticate the message of Christ, the miracles alone were not sufficient for salvation, the wonders, the signs. What had to happen into a person's life is as they saw the miracles and it authenticated the word, they had allowed the word to penetrate their hearts and their lives. True conviction, true transformation. You see later on the true heart of this guy in verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. We want, I want that kind of power. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to accomplish this. Remember earlier, Dr. Luke said he was claiming that he was someone great, and perhaps he wanted to try to continue that status. He says, I'll pay you. Well, personal greed is never really favored in the early church, and especially in Dr. Luke's writing. We've already seen an individual, actually a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that had demonstrated such greed. 
and they had also seen the judgment of God. And here again, as this personal greed rears its head, Peter looks at this man and says, your money perished with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Peter rejects him. Peter was not a charlatan. Peter was a transformed believer of Christ. He was not one to dabble in the selling of the Holy Spirit. One, he couldn't. Two, his character would not have allowed him. And he rejects this Simon. He says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness. And pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. It's pretty tough words, aren't they? But may I say to you that greed can lead us to a place. Greed can lead us to a place of disappointment and destruction. Greed can lead us to a place where we have rejected God's heart and God's will. Peter says, repent. Change, turn, walk a different direction. Embrace him, for you are poisoned with bitterness. Now, it says that Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. And really with that, we don't know much else of Simon. The response that he had, the response that was given, whether it was true repentance or not, we just, we don't know. We're not told by Dr. Luke. We're not told by history. But even in this, even in this demonic deception of Simon, the gospel overcomes and triumphs. For even if Satan himself would use his forces, use his deception to try to stop the gospel, even in that way, God is yet more powerful. And God and his message continues to go forth. Isn't that an awesome God? That can overcome all these things. The director and the star of the story. God. The one who can work through history to advance his good news. No matter what the obstacle, no matter what is going to come, persecution, persecution, or deception, or ethnic tension, whatever it is, the gospel continues to go forth. 
Verse 25 is one of those summary verses. It says, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. They go forth, continuing to preach and teach. And somehow, God continues to bring his blessing, to, to bring his harvest. As they continue to be faithful, God, well, he just demonstrates his faithfulness and his power. You know, there is one point where you wish that people you wish people could at least sense this great power just as Simon did maybe not maybe not respond certainly not respond the way Simon but at least Simon was able to say there was power in that God I've been moved here lately as I've read some different passages, prepared for different messages. I've been moved by how so many unbelievers and pagans were moved, or at least they stood in awe of the power of the God we serve. Just a few weeks ago, uh, preparing to speak at New Orleans Seminary, talking about Second Kings chapter 6, and was talking about the Syrian king and how he sent a great army with chariots and horses and all after one man named Elisha. I mean, all of those forces he sent because somehow he respected Elisha, and I think even more, he knew that Elisha's God was powerful. Now again, he fought against him instead of surrendering to him. But I'm saying to you, he at least knew that our God was powerful. And throughout Scripture, you see, I mean, Satan himself, Satan himself knows that we serve a powerful God. The challenge for us is that our eyes would be open. If unbelievers can see the power, certainly we should be able to. We should see how powerful our God is and how he can work to achieve his will and his purpose, how he can advance his gospel over every barrier, over every issue that we face. God can work in his own way. And God will work in his own way. To fulfill his ultimate purposes. And one day. To achieve his full glory. That's the God we serve. And Acts 8. Simply shows us once again. His triumph. His message. And its victory over all things that the church encounters. Are you not praising the Lord with me tonight? Are you not praising me to know, praising with me to know that tonight, that the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against his church? He will 
see his victory through. And he will use his people in his own way to advance his gospel no matter what comes against us. Let's pray together. Father, we give you glory tonight because God, you are worthy. You deserve our worship and our adoration because only a God like you could achieve such great and victorious purposes and plans for us. God, tonight we're thankful that you did not allow any barrier to stop your gospel from going forth. We're thankful that you were committed to your story. We're thankful that you were committed to your glory in such a way that you were able to demonstrate it even in our lives. Now, God, we pray that we would leave this place with a sense of that power and a sense of that victory as the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us. Lord, that we can make a difference in our workplace and in our school class. Father, even as we see you touch the nations, God, we pray that your power would be demonstrated through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?